came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcast. My name is Brendan O'Brien. And today is Thursday, the 21st of June, 2018. Each fortnight, we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today, our feature interview is with Dr. Jane Kazmerich, who is working on the Parkes Radio Telescope, which first came to our attention in 1969, when it bought us television pictures of Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon. But... Parks has moved a long way since then. Then after Dr. Jane, we bring you our usual feature with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave when he tells us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on a bizarre tangent. And then we'll finish up this episode with some Astro News highlights where we bring you the latest news in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So let's cross over now to the control room at the Parkes Radio Telescope Observatory. Hello, Jane. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Jane Kazmerich who is a CSIRO research scientist and postdoctoral fellow who's just been installing novel wideband receivers in the iconic Parkes Radio Telescope in New South Wales, Australia, to give it some amazing new capabilities. She has her BSc in Physics and Astrophysics from the University of Wisconsin, and we'll also hear about her doctorate in Physics from the University of Sydney. Meanwhile, where did you grow up, Jane? And please tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place. And did you have dark skies in your backyard? Oh, thanks, Brendan. I grew up in a small town called Muskego in the state of Wisconsin in the United States. I did have dark skies, but those dark skies were covered in trees. So (laughs) Wisconsin has a lot of forests, and you were pretty lucky to get to a place where you had open skies unless you were in the middle of a lake. Yep. So that's kind of where my first foray into looking up kind of came from, was, you know, trying to find a good space where you could actually see a full sky. I was always interested in science. I actually might be one of the few astronomers who didn't always know that they wanted to do astronomy. My kind of upbringing or my schooling didn't really have those types of courses that encouraged me or even let me know that that was something that one could do. So it wasn't until I got to university that I had found that astrophysics was something that somebody could actually do for a living. And I found that it was this beautiful mix between 
answering the deep questions that physics could let us do and kind of the beauty that chemistry allows as well. So it's been a bit of a, a lucky journey for me to be doing what I'm doing now. Fantastic. So tell us a little about those school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? So my early days, I knew I wanted to do science. And I remember getting my first telescope at the age of 10. And I didn't really know what to do with it. So I'd pointed at the moon a few times, but I knew that any time I had to go outside, it was dark and cold. So it was kind of, um, <laughs> it wasn't very motivating for me because Wisconsin is very cold a lot of the time. So my ambitions, I thought I wanted to be a rocket scientist. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And it was always these kind of science-based things that I wanted to pursue. And it wasn't until university and some very good mentors along the way that I found the path to astrophysics. Okay. So let's assume you did some basic science in high school. Then you went on to do your Bachelor of Science degrees at the University of Wisconsin. Did you feel well prepared for university level physics after your curriculum in high school? I didn't actually. The school that I went to did its best to offer what it could for advanced science. And unfortunately, advanced physics wasn't offered where I went to high school. So when I started physics at university level, I was a bit swamped. And actually, those are my worst grades came from introductory physics when I was a bachelor's student. But quickly, I guess I learned to study and I also learned to ask for help. And so as soon as I started getting the skill set of learning to learn, it was much easier for me going forward. And then that's how I kind of was able to start conversations with people that later became my mentors, my bosses and my advisors was by asking for help at, at university-level courses. That is sensational. So, after you were awarded your BSCs, your science bachelor degrees, you stayed on at the University of Wisconsin as a research assistant. Can you tell us about that post-grad work you did? I can. I was first extremely lucky to have that option. The reason that I stayed behind for a year was because I knew that I was going to be moving to Australia and going to get my PhD at the University of Sydney. But as many people will know, when it's winter in the Northern Hemisphere, it's summer in the South and vice versa. So I had a whole year to wait before my curriculum started at Sydney. Yep. And so in that time, I was able to actually work at the University of Wisconsin continuing with some of the research that I had started in my undergraduate with Professor Eric Wilcotts. And also, maybe the most fortunate thing for me was it was my first foray into teaching. So in that year, I was actually a teacher's assistant, or I was kind of the first point of contact in teaching students past the professor in their astronomy courses. Yep. And that was when I really learned that I love teaching and I love the process of explaining the universe to other people. Fantastic. And then you've got that huge move over to Australia to do your PhD in physics and astrophysics at the University of Sydney. Can you tell us how this move came about, please? Uh, oh, much culture it... shock? Actually, surprisingly, not too much culture shock. When I first moved to Sydney, maybe I'll start with at the beginning and explain how it happened. I had gone to a conference, the American Astronomical Society meeting, and I was going to dinner with some of my colleagues and a 
gentleman by the name of Brian Gainsler came along as well. And he was at the University of Sydney. And my advisor at the time from undergrad had said, Brian, you're looking for a PhD student. Jane, you're looking for a PhD school. Why don't you guys talk about it? And it all came from that one conversation over dinner at a meeting. It was a very chance encounter. At the time, actually deliberating between going to university and for my PhD in the United States. And when the opportunity presented itself to move to Australia, I couldn't think of a reason not to. I had never thought my life would be so interesting as to move halfway across the globe. And so I decided why not. When I did finally move to Australia, the culture shock wasn't too bad because the people in Sydney and the people that I met at the University of Sydney were incredibly nice and welcoming. And they actually reminded me a bit of the Midwestern personalities that I came from back at Wisconsin. So it was almost like moving to a warmer home. It was quite a nice change because I also moved in the middle of winter in the, for the U.S., moving to the middle of summer in Sydney. That was a welcome change. Fantastic. So... Your successful PhD thesis has a fabulous title. Gert, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I love it. Gert by B. Radio Polarimetric Observations of Kiloparsec Scale Magnetic Fields. Now, before we talk about monstrous magnetic field bridges in space, can you tell us about Gert by B? Is this you embracing Australian culture, Jane? It absolutely is. I love the word Gert. I love the fact that it's in the national anthem and most Australians don't even know what it means, or at least most, and definitely most English speakers don't. I actually had to define the word in my thesis because some of my thesis examiners didn't know what it means. But don't worry, my definition came from the Macquarie Dictionary as well. But yes, I do consider Australia home now. And so the, the Kind of the pun comes from the fact that the letter B in electrodynamics often stands for magnetic field. So my thesis is about magnetic fields and how they actually girt or kind of surround and encompass things in the universe. That is astonishing. Now, the Magellanic Clouds are a beautiful sight in southern skies. Can you give us a brief primer on these Magellanic magnetic fields, please, Jane? How are they generated and how did you detect and map them? So you're right, the Magellanic Clouds are an astounding sight. And so the motivation for this work came from the fact that since the early 1960s, people had been seeing hints that there was a magnetic field, a continuous ordered magnetic field, the same thing that kind of connects your magnets to fridges at home. Yep. that actually connected these two clouds. So these clouds aren't clouds at all. They are galaxies outside of our Milky Way. And you can imagine how big these magnetic fields must be if they're spanning these two galaxies. So there were hints of this since the 1960s, but no one had been able to definitively show that this magnetic field existed connecting with these two galaxies. So what I did, well, what we eventually, well, myself and my colleagues eventually did, was, was show that not only was there a magnetic field that indeed did connect these two galaxies and kind of had a shared history between them, but we also showed that that magnetic field had structure, that there was actually a, an overarching pattern that made sense between these two galaxies. And so what we did in order to prove that is maybe first we need to talk a little bit about how light works. 
So I did this using radio light. So it's very, very low powered light if you want to think about the entire electromagnetic spectrum. So the electromagnetic spectrum does mean light, and light is made up of both an electric field and a magnetic field. And so if you wanted to think about the universe and you had light coming from some distant, distant source, if you had a chunk of stuff, any kind of stuff that you want to imagine in front of that light, so between the observer and that distant source, if that chunk of stuff had a magnetic field in it, the two kind of components of light, the electric and the, ma- and the magnetic fields, would rotate at different amounts relative to one another. And so by measuring that amount of rotation, we can actually measure the strength of the intervening magnetic field. Yep. So we had to use that fact towards hundreds of polarized background sources that were very, very far away to actually work out that not only was the light from these objects being rotated due to an intervening magnetic field, but we were also able to show that this magnetic field that connects the two galaxies through the Magellanic Bridge is about one billionth the strength of the Earth's magnetic field. Hmm. So it's pretty astounding to be able to measure something so weak that's so far away. That is just beautiful. Okay. Now we should move closer to our main focus in this episode. Can you tell us how you came to take up your postdoc position with the CSIRO? Yeah. I started working with CSIRO in November of last year. And my job, it was actually to, uh, we knew that there was a new receiver coming to the telescope. And from the very detailed work that I had previously described in measuring magnetic fields, you start to learn to be able to kind of disentangle how telescopes work to be able to find these really, really low signals or these really, really weak signals. So that had actually kind of prepared me for this job to be able to not so much now look for weak signals, but look for signals that aren't supposed to be there. So we have just installed a new receiver on the Parkes radio telescope called the Ultra Wide Bandwidth Low, or sometimes we just call it the UWL. And in order to make sure that the receiver is doing well, is doing its job, we need to make sure that the signal that we're getting through the telescope doesn't have any signal that's not supposed to be there. So is there any kind of contamination coming from the system that that we've set up? So that's a huge part of my job right now, is making sure that the data coming from this iconic kind of scientific behemoth, if you want, it continues doing just or providing just as great of science and data to the the astronomers that are using it. Fantastic. So right now, we'll just remind people that you are at the CSIRO Parks Dish in New South Wales. And for those who want some more background on this fabulous radio telescope and how it's been continually upgraded since the original construction in 1961, you should go and have a listen to episodes 17 and 22 of Astrophys, where Jane's colleague, John Sarkissian, first introduced us to some of the technology and research done at Parks. Now, to set the scene, Jane, can you explain what a receiver is, please? Absolutely. So a receiver is like the radio ear of a radio telescope. So if you had to think about a receiver for your body, that would be your eyes. Your eyes are what is receiving the light that we see around us. Now, as we go to lower and lower frequencies of light, because light spans everything from radio to microwave to infrared to x-rays, 
into gamma rays. So radio is at the very, very end. And so if you wanted to think about receiving light that have very low power or actually long wavelengths, you need to imagine increasing the size of your eyes to reflect the changing size of your light wave. And so the receiver on Parks is just that. It's seeing the radio waves from the universe. And what's so amazing about this receiver, the UWL, is that it's able to see a huge amount of light at the same time. So to kind of switch to a different analogy, a radio receiver in your car, you would have your tunable radio. I, I know that everybody doesn't have those nowadays, which is a hard thing to, to believe. <laughs> but if you wanted to think about your, your traditional radio receiver in a car, you would have your AM and your FM bands. And you couldn't listen to both at the same time. So if you wanted to switch AM to FM, you're actually switching your receiver to be able to see different parts of that band. Now, the new receiver on Parks, the UWL, the recent upgrade that makes it so astounding is that it can see the equivalent of the low or the AM band and the FM band in their entirety at the same time. So it's a very, very, if you want to think about it, noisy telescope. There's a lot of stuff that it can hear or see from the universe. And it's a $2.5 million instrument that you've strapped onto the Parks dish. As a result of this, Jane, what new research will now be happening at the dish? Ah, oh, lots of new research. So one of the main motivators for this new receiver was to study pulsars. Pulsars are neutron stars, a special type of star in the universe that kind of work like lighthouses and that they spin around at an exact rate and we can actually see the flashes of light from them at cosmic distances. Using pulsars, we can do all kinds of interesting stuff like study gravitational waves, and we can study different theories of gravity, and we can study the intervening interstellar medium, so the rest of the galaxy itself. And we can even eventually start to do navigation by the pulses of these kind of cosmic lighthouses. But I think the most interesting potential of this new receiver is finding the unknown unknown. Yes. No receiver like this exists like this anywhere else in the world. So it's hard to know exactly what we're going to find. And that's where the real exciting science is, is to find or start to open up even new windows into the universe and study things that we didn't even know were there before. That's beautiful. Okay, let's get specific now about your role in commissioning these new receivers. What have you been doing there recently? And what tasks await you over the coming weeks and months? Yes, so I also want to take a second to say that I'm not doing this all alone. There is a huge <laughs> team. There's a huge team of people at CSIRO yep. and other universities across Australia that are helping with this commissioning effort. But what we're really focusing on right now is because there's so much data coming from this receiver, it's really difficult to transport that data from the kind of the focus cabin, that little kind of blip that you see on the top of the dish, down to computers across Australia and make sure that that signal makes sense. And in order to do that, we also need to make sure that the frequencies or the, the kind of the values of things make sense. We also need to make sure that we know how bright an object is. So one of the powers of parks is that it's very, very sensitive to dim things in the universe. But we need to know exactly how bright things are to calibrate the signal so that we know kind of exact values of things. 
But another really interesting thing that I'm working on, and it has a lot of the astronomy community looking towards us to see how this goes, is most telescopes observe in two domains. One can observe in the frequency domain, so that's looking for spectral lines, things like hydrogen, and things like oxygen all over the sky. Another is the time domain. So that would be something like pulsars, where you're actually, you're folding your data at a certain time stamp, and you're building up things over time to see how things change with time on the sky. Now, all telescopes in the world observe in one or the other. Yep. This new receiver has the potential to observe in both domains at the same time. So, so to watch how things change with time on the sky and how they change with frequency. And so that's extremely exciting because you can actually start to study what physical processes are changing when things go bang, just as they go bang on the sky. And that's really, really exciting because what we're doing now is if something goes bang, you quickly have to change to the other mode and point to the telescope and you kind of see the after effects. You don't necessarily see what stimulated that kind of new process. So that's very exciting and it's going to take us a bit of time, but we're definitely going to be able to pull that off within the next year. Wow. You're going to keep your eyes and ears open for fast radio bursts? You betcha. We are definitely going to be looking for fast radio bursts. And now we're going to look for the counterparts that happen or that change along with them. Ah, beautiful. What a great challenge. And it's great to hear the excitement in your voice when you're describing <laughs> all this, Jane. It's wonderful. Now, It really is an exciting time. Yeah. Well, we've often referred to this period of time as the golden age of astrophysics on this show. Okay, so the mic is all yours now, Jane, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges that we face in science, in education, in equity, in outreach, in our quest for knowledge or space. It's all yours. Oh, there's always something that can be said for education and equality. But I think that there are massive steps that are being taken towards achieving equality, not just in astronomy, but in all STEM fields. And I think it really does start at an early age. And it's, it's all about seeing what you can become. And I am trying very hard to actually engage with regional communities and regional schools to be able to show young girls and boys that, you know, this is something that you can do. Australia has an amazing, amazing radio sky. It's so quiet here like Murchison, where the MWA and where ASCAP is being built and where eventually part of the SKA will be built, that we should really capitalize on this unique window to the universe that we can see. And the only way that we're really going to make the most of that is make sure that the next generation of, of Australian astronomers are motivated to carry this flag and to be proud to continue this amazing tradition within Australia to do this type of science. There's nowhere else in the world that can do it. And I think it's really important that it's not just the kids that go to you know, elite schools that have this understanding of the potential that they have. So I think you're right. It's a golden age of astrophysics in the world and in Australia. But it won't remain that way if we don't continue to engage and inspire and kind of encourage the next generation to look up and wonder. It sounds like you're doing exactly that, Jane. That's fantastic. So... Right now, we warmly invite our listeners to follow Jane on Twitter. That's at JFKACZ 
M-A-R-E-K, and Pulse at Parks on Twitter. Anything else we should watch out for in the near future, Jane? Absolutely. So the UWL is actually the first of a complete receiver fleet change at Parks. So in the next few years, we are anticipating a whole new set of receivers. So two other receivers that we will be getting installed on the telescope that are really going to revolutionize the science that happens at Parks. So watch this space. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jane Kazmarek. It's been fabulous to hear about your wonderful work at the CSIRO Parks Radio Observatory in Australia. Thank you so much, Brendan, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Goodbye now. Bye. And now we cross over to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky this week? What's up in the sky this week? We have all five of the bright, unaided by planets lined up in the evening sky, from Mercury to Venus to Jupiter to Saturn to Mars. And not only do we have unaided by planets, we also have a bright dwarf planet, Vesta. Yep. So all happening in the evening skies over the, the next few nights. Early on in the week, of course, we've got the waxing moon visiting bright planets Jupiter, Saturn and Mars. But let's start off with Mercury. Now, Mercury hiding close to the sun for quite some time. And now it's coming out from behind the sun. It's been visible low in the twilight at the end of last week. But now it's getting higher and brighter and easier to see. So if you're filling the west after sunset, from about half an hour after sunset, you should see Mercury above the horizon. And if you sweep up your eye from Mercury, you'll see Venus. Then following up into the sky, you'll see Jupiter. And Saturn is now just beginning to rise at the end of civil twilight. If you wait about 45 minutes, Mercury is still reasonably high above the horizon and it will be much brighter to see. And Saturn will be much easier to see. So you've got a really good view of all the planets. Sadly, by the time Mercury sets, Mars still hasn't risen. Mars doesn't rise until relatively late in the evening. But still, you'll be able to see all of them during the evening at some stage. Now, now Mercury's, it's going to take a path that's not dissimilar to the path that Venus has had over the past few weeks. Now, you remember that Venus formed this nice pattern with Castor and Pollux, and Mercury will also form a pattern with Pollux as well. This is going to be a really good time to see Mercury from the southern hemisphere. Mercury will be quite high above the horizon the rest of this week, by the end of this month and the beginning of next month. So for about a month, all up, we're going to have a really good view of Mercury, but it never really gets too high above the horizon in terms of being able to see deep sky objects. So while it was in under dark sky conditions, it would be impossible to see the, the Beehive and Venus together. Mercury and the Beehive are going to be a little bit harder to uh, to see with the unaided eye, but they'll be very good together in binoculars. Now that's that's going to happen around about the. 3rd of July, 
Mercury will zoom through the beehive. Now, looking over the next few nights, Venus is close to the beehive on the 20th. This will be, of course, before this program goes to air. But it's still going to be close for some time afterwards. So up until uh, the beginning of next week, Venus will be uh, within the binocular range of M44. So within binoculars, you should see the beehive as a beautiful sparkling group of stars and Venus drawing away from it over the night. So that'd be really nice to look at over successive nights, watching Venus draw away from the beehive. Excellent. So even though Venus is leaving the beehive behind, it's heading towards the brightest star in the constellation of Leo. That's uh, Regulus. So over the coming week, you'll see Venus coming closer and closer to the bright Regulus, and it comes closest during our next talk. But for the moment, you can enjoy it. And if you watch every night, you'll be able to see Venus move closer and closer. And again, last week we talked about astrophotography. This would be an ideal time to do evening astrophotography and be able to get in the last glimmers of twilight with still some colour. Venus and Regulus coming closer to colour, so you can make an animation of the two coming together. And that would look really quite nice. Yeah, again, simple things you can do with low-cost equipment that will look quite stunning when you've done. Very good. And now on to Jupiter. Jupiter, of course, is past opposition. Of course, unlike Mars, where opposition means Mars is only really big and bright for a very limited period of time, Jupiter, even though it's past opposition, is still big, bright, and very good in telescopes. Uh, there's lots of nice moon events where the moons either go in front or face of Jupiter, and you'll quite often see uh, double events where the moon will pass across and then the shadow of the moon will pass after it. Eclipses and moons close together. So there's lots of things happening uh, every night, uh, whether you're looking at the telescope's binoculars. Of course, if you have a telescope, then watching the bands and the movement of the Great Red Spot will be excellent. Jupiter is still only a finger width away from the bright, star of Alpha 2 Libre, otherwise known by the wonderful name Luna Luna, which means core, because Libra used to be part of the constellation of Scorpius, yeah. but they got separated, and, but it still retains, uh, the Alpha star of Libra still retains its Arabic name meaning core. Yeah. Jupiter is quite close to Luna Luna at the moment, and it remains close for the next couple of weeks so it will still be quite nice to see the pair we went out last week with the binoculars and jupiter and its moons were just fantastic we could see three of the moons very clearly through binoculars yes people quite often don't really appreciate the degree to which you can see astronomical phenomenon with a single binoculars and uh, binoculars are very useful because they give you experience with looking at the sky under magnification and finding your way around and getting a feel for the things you really like to look at. So don't underestimate binoculars. A pair of binoculars in your backpack, you can use them by day to look at birds, or you can use them by night to look at stars. Very good. And for people that get up early in the morning, I'm not one of them, Ian. Is there things to look out for in the morning skies? Jupiter will be setting in the early morning. Saturn is going to be quite high 
in the early morning skies, as will be Mars. Saturn comes to opposition this week, so when Saturn will be biggest and brightest as seen from Earth on the 27th. At this time, the, the Moon will be close to, to Saturn, so if you're still unsure which bright golden object below the uh, tail of Scorpion is Saturn, uh, it will be the brightest object next to the Moon. So Saturn is always good to look at in telescopes. The rings are particularly open at the moment, so you'll have some really good telescopic views of Saturn. Saturn will be rising as the sun is setting, and it's going to be visible all night long. So you'll have lots of time to, uh, to watch Saturn. Saturn is still close to the globular cluster M22. It doesn't fit in a telescope field, but it does fit in a binocular field. In a binocular field, you may be able to see the brightest moon Titan if you're paying careful attention to its movements over the night. It is tricky to see in binoculars, but it is possible if you've got a really good dark sky site. But through binoculars, uh, Saturn uh, is uh, distinctly oval. So it's, it's quite, even though you can't see the rings uh, properly in binoculars, Saturn will be distinctly oval in binoculars and be quite interesting. As I said, on the 27th, the moon is close to Saturn, uh, and that will make it very easy to see. Unfortunately, the moon will be washing out all the interesting deep sky objects nearby, but probably make observing Saturn a little bit more difficult because it's in a telescope because of the brightness of the moon, washing out some of the details of the rings but it shouldn't be too much problem because of how bright Saturn is. Well, you've just set a challenge for me, Ian. I've got our binoculars mounted on a tripod, and that makes a huge difference. I just got one of those $8 mounts that connects the binoculars to the tripod, and it works a wonder. It makes a huge difference to be able to hold the binoculars still. Yeah, oh, look, it makes a huge difference. I'm a big fan of binoculars, but I'm also an enormous fan of binocular mount because just the, the, the stability. If you're looking at uh, Jupiter's moons with, with holding uh, binoculars by hand, especially if you've got a decent sized pair of binoculars, uh, little binoculars are easy to hold, but it's, you don't get that sort of same resolution of the moons. But a decent pair of field 10 by 50s or 7 by 50s can be a bit of a weight to try and hold up and you'll, you'll find yourself wobbling. So even though the moons are there, they wobble all over the place. It's really hard to get a feel for them. So yeah, I'm a very big fan of binoculars and tripods. And also if you're looking at deep sky objects around Saturn, for example, there's all these wonderful deep sky objects. And if you're able to have, hold it quite steady, you'll be able to pick out some features that you wouldn't normally be able to pick out if you just sort of walk. Uh, holding a, a, a wobbly pair of binoculars. Even if, even if you're uh, propping yourself up on the, the boot of a car or a fence or something, you can get some good stability. But a good tripod really works well. Very good. Well, finding Titan will be my next challenge. Mars is coming up to opposition, yep. and it's now in a good position for evening and morning observation for telescopes. However, if you point your telescope to Mars at the moment, you're going to see a rather bland orange disk because there's, uh, there's a, a global dust storm blanketing Mars. Oh, well, yes. Us Mars enthusiasts have been waiting for the, this opposition of Mars 
which is going to be the best since the 2003 opposition, this is a bit disappointing because you can't see anything through the dust. And those of you who are fans of Opportunity will be barracking for the, the little robot to shut down all of its non-important operations and hunkering down and trying to keep warm as dust clouds blow out the sun. And it's, the loss of sunlight is quite dramatic. Opportunity is solar powered. So with the sun gone, it can't charge its batteries. It can't keep itself, not only can it not uh, send information back to Earth or take photographs or do anything useful, it can't, it can't keep itself warm. So they're hoping that the dust will be able to blow over sometime soon and that opportunity will return to us. But uh, again, for those of you who have telescopes, even a small telescope, Mars, is, is, is now very obvious. But yes, Mars is just going to be a bland orange thing as the dust storm rages. So hopefully over the next few days the dust storm will clear and you'll be able to see the markings of, the, uh, of Mars, uh, the southern hemisphere polar caps, which should be distinctive in even small telescopes now. Well, hopefully when this dust storm is over, we'll get Mark Watney to pop by and clean off the solar panels. Uh, indeed, indeed. Part of the reason that Opportunities and Spirit's missions were meant to be lasting only 90 days was that they thought that by the end of 90 days, so much dust would accumulate on the solar panels, they wouldn't be able to charge their batteries. But what happened was that the winds also blew the dust off. Anyway, so that's the bright thing up in the sky. Of course, don't forget, even though Vesta is just past opposition, it's still quite bright. It's still theoretically visible to the unaided eye dark sky location, being uh, 5.4 magnitude uh, the coming week. And if you sweep up from Saturn through the beautiful Trippet Nebula, you should be able to see Vesta not far from the open cluster M23. And so that will be, and watching Vesta move over the uh, coming week will be very, very pleasant. Now, Ian, do you have a bizarre tangent for us? I do have a bizarre tangent for you. One of the things we like to do is to measure the rotation of planets. So it's, it's a bit prosaic. We like to know how fast planets spin. It's uh, nice to know, for example, that Mars's day is almost an approximation of ours. So for a planet like Mars with uh, observable features, it's really easy to work out how fast Mars is rotating. You just follow Sirius Major or something like that and watch when it comes back into view again. Venus is a little bit harder because it's, although it has a solid surface, it's wrapped in dense clouds and working out how fast Venus's surface rotates is was more problematic and we required um, uh, radar mappers to work that out. Yep. But what about something like Jupiter? that doesn't have a solid surface. How do you work out how fast that uh, rotates? You can, of course, measure how fast the clouds rotate, and Jupiter has a very obvious signpost in the great red spot, yep. but that's how fast the cloud tops are rotating. What about the planet itself? And again, with Jupiter, the question of what the planet is is actually quite problematic, because as you go down in Jupiter, it gets uh, denser and denser until you sort of go from being a gas into metallic hydrogen, which really isn't a surface 
So this is problematic. Saturn itself is, is like that, where you have this cloud, you can measure the location of the cloud tops, but the cloud tops are the atmosphere and not the planet itself. Again, with Saturn, the definition is a bit problematic because, of course, like Jupiter, as you go down, down to the atmosphere, the atmosphere gets denser and denser until you have this transition zone between um, the atmosphere as a ultra-high-pressure gas and something that that acts as a solid. Yes. And so you have this sort of transition zone, quite possibly a, a, a solid core lurking down in, in, uh, underneath this layer of, of things which should be a gas but acting like metal. Again, Uranus and Neptune have a similar issue where you've got uncomfortable transition from uh, their atmosphere being a gas to a core that's hit, that's covered in material that really can't be properly described as a surface. So how do we measure the rotation of these sorts of objects? The answer is radio waves. The, uh, uh, the uh, core of planets uh, act as giant radio generators, and because the axes of rotation are slightly angled, the radio waves sweep around in a daily cycle. And so by measuring how long it takes for the radio signals to peak and fade, you can work out how fast the planets are rotating. Now, Voyager um, uh, shot past all the big planets and measured the rotation rates of uh, Jupiter. Jupiter rotates about 9 hours, 55 minutes. Uranus rotates in 17 hours, 14 minutes. Neptune in 16 hours, 6.5 minutes. And they measured Saturn as well. Now, Saturn was measured to have a rotation rate of 10 hours, 39 minutes, and 24 seconds, which is quite accurate. And so about 10.7 hours. So that was really nice. Fantastic. Then, then came Cassini. Cassini measured the uh, rotation rate again using the radio data, and it came out slightly longer. They got 10.8 hours. But they discovered something interesting, is that unlike Jupiter and the other giant planets, the radio rotation rate of Saturn is different in the North Pole and the South Pole. So whatever the, the, the radio emissions are measuring, it's not the bulk rotation of the planet, it's something else. Wow. So what's another way we can measure the rotation of a planet? And this involves the rings. The rings of Saturn are, are, are beautiful and everyone loves to look at them through telescopes. Saturn's rings are very beautiful. Uh, they also tell us something about the dynamics of, of the uh, moons around Saturn. Uh, we've seen Cassini's images of the giant ice mountains rotating in Saturn's rings. But we can also use Saturn's rings to measure how fast Saturn rotates. And this is because of gravity. Uh, gravity, as you know, the gravity of any planet is not entirely uniform. It relates to surface features of the planet and where the dense lumps lie. And so what happens is that as Saturn rotates, it sets up gravity waves in rings. And so you can watch the wave structures in Saturn's rings move according to the rotation of the gravity field of Saturn. Wow. And it can tell you not just how fast Saturn moves, but it gives you an idea about how, what, the, what the structure of the inside of Saturn must be. So what they've been able to do by looking at the, uh, the gravity waves as they sweep across the rings 
is to work out what structures of, of uh, how many layers there are in the in the atmosphere and as the atmosphere goes from being a gas to something that uh, is more like a, uh, a liquid, how many layers there are, the density of the layers, um, and, and be able to work out how fast it rotates. Now, from the density waves going through Saturn's rings, that turns out to be 10 hours, 35.3, and 2.3 minutes. So, yeah, okay, it's 10.6 hours. So you've got three measures, uh, measurements of Saturn's day, 10.6, 10.7, and 10.8. Now, most people are probably saying, well, that's close enough, isn't it? But, you know, for astrophysicists, because we want to, uh, they want to understand exactly what's going on in the planet, making sure that they're actually seeing rotation of the bulk, uh, the, the bulk density of the planet, rather than uh, being fooled by differences between what's making the radio waves in the North Pole and the South Pole. This is kind of important. So we might think, you know, 10.1 of an hour fast, uh, faster, that's not much, but the astrophysicists are going, oh, that's considerably faster. Why is this happening? And so they're still investigating the basic structure of Saturn, all by watching ripples moving around the rings of Saturn. Now, your next time you look at the rings of Saturn, you go, they're beautiful, but they're not just beautiful. They tell us something very deep and very fundamental about the inner structure of the parent planet. And that's pretty mind-boggling. Just watching waves, waves in the rings tells us so much. Very nice detective work. Oh, look, it's absolutely brilliant. Because, I mean, the first people go, oh, look, there's waves in... The Saturn's rings, isn't that strange? And they went from being strange to realising that they were gravity waves and going, whoa, and <laughs> learning, and we can use this, we can use this to understand the planet itself. That's just really, really amazing. Yep, that's how science works. You get one answer and that raises three more questions. Yeah, very, 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 very much so. Very, very much so. Okay, well, thank you very much, Ian, Astroblog Musgrave. Thank you very much, Brendan. It was a pleasure to be on and a pleasure to share the wonderful, weird, uh, varying brightnesses of Saturn's rings. So next time you look at the, uh, you go out and with your telescope or with your binoculars and look at Saturn's rings, you go, that's really interesting. They're doing more with the rings than just looking at them and saying they're pretty. Beautiful. Okay, well, thanks, Ian. No worries. The 21st of June, Astrophys News. Here's our latest SKA update, adapted from a story in Science by Daniel Cleary on June 19, 2018. Today, the Square Kilometre Array, the SKA, a continent-spanning radio astronomy project, announced that Spain had come on board as a collaboration's 11th member. That boost will help the sometimes troubled project as, over the next year or so, it forms an international treaty organisation and negotiates funding to start construction. In Australia, in an extreme radio quiet zone where the MWA SKA precursor has already produced some amazing science using revolutionary spider antenna arrays, phase one of the SKA will add about 130,000 antennas in Australia.
Phase 1 of ESKA in Africa will add more than 130 dishes to South Africa's 64-dish Meerkat Precursor Telescope on the wide open plains of the Karoo Desert. The last of the 64 13.5-metre dishes was installed late last year, and next month South African President Cyril Ramaphosa will officially open the facility. Spread across 8 kilometres, the dishes have a collecting area similar to that of the great workhorse of astrophysics, the Carl Jungsky Very Large Array, the VLA, near Sirocco in New Mexico. But with new hardware designs and a powerful supercomputer to process data, Mikat could have an edge on its 40-year-old northern cousin. So while this partnership announcement with Spain is new, though, to be fair, Spain has been collaborating and contributing to the SKA through their industry, institutions and scientific teams for many years already. Welcome aboard, Spain. Bienvenido a bordo de España. And here's an update on the latest FRB, or Fast Radio Burst News, from an accepted paper by Vikram Ravi in the monthly notice of the Royal Astronomical Society, also on the 19th of June. Here's an abstract of his abstract. He presents an empirical study of the properties of fast radio bursts, FRBs, and focuses his investigation on a sample of 17 FRBs detected at Parkes Radio Telescope and concludes that it is uncertain at present whether they share a common class of progenitor object or arise from a selection of independent progenitors. And to add to the mystery, check out this recently revised paper in RxIV by J.O.G. Rosa and Thomas W. Klephart, who hypothesise that FRBs may be the result of spinning black holes creating dark matter lasers. Read it yourself at tinyurlcom forward slash black hole FRB, all lowercase, all one word. The mystery of FRBs lives on. Watch this space. See you in two weeks. Right now,